Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So it's a real pleasure for me to be back here with you in Trinity. The last time I was giving a Thomistic Institute talk, it was all about how early Irish Christians understood the pagan past. And it was a pleasure to talk about that question, which has interested me for ages. And it was even more of a pleasure to spend time with other people who were interested in such a strange question. But I think nobody could deny that that is not a particularly important question. It might have some academic importance, but it's in no way a life-changing question. Tonight's question is different. Should I believe that Jesus is God? That is a bit more significant. If Jesus is true God and true man, as the church believes, if he is, as the Nicene Creed proclaims, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, consubstantial with the Father, then his teachings deserve our study, his actions deserve our imitation, and he himself deserves our worship. If he is a mere man, on the other hand, then what he said and did, it might all be very nice, it might even be inspiring, but it has no particular authority. This question is of civilizational importance as well. There are so many aspects, not just of Western cultures, but of Christian cultures across the world, which cannot really be separated from belief that Jesus is worthy of worship and that his teachings are worth following. So much of what we value is somehow connected to this central belief. So much art, so much work for social justice and literature and community life and spiritual practices. Even many of the beliefs and attitudes that we might think of as universal, as just what decent people think, they are in fact not very universal at all, I'd claim, and are firmly rooted in communities which took the teachings of Jesus seriously because they regarded him as true man and true God. Tom Holland's book, uh, Dominion, is a very good statement of that case, incidentally. Even if we as post-Christians want to hold on to, if we are post-Christians, I'm obviously not a post-Christian, but imagine we, are, we were, even if we as post-Christians were to want to hold on to all the good elements of the Christian culture that we value, it's hard to deny that the energy of that culture is diminished in the absence of belief in the creed. Post-Christians might be very happy to go on singing gospel music and singing Christmas carols, as apparently they are just across the quad, um, and enjoying the art of Fra Angelico and Michelangelo. But they can't mean the words they're singing, and they're not venerating, as Fra Angelico did, the figure represented in the art. Something is surely lost, or at least something significant changes when Christ appears to us no longer as divine. So the question of Jesus' divinity, it has civilizational consequences, but it's a deeply personal question as well. Beyond these big questions, something has led you to come and investigate this question tonight. Maybe it's profound personal faith on your part. Maybe it's profound doubt. Maybe it's a desire to re-examine questions you thought you had put to bed. Maybe it's giving a weakened faith one last chance. Maybe it's curiosity, or maybe it's sheer contrariness. I have no idea what brought you here, and I'm going to do my best to honor your presence with something that speaks to your diversity. For my own part, 
The question of the divinity of Jesus is something I struggled with growing up at various times, although once I became convinced of the truth of this belief, it acted as a kind of a touchstone when I doubted other aspects of the faith, or when I was shaken by scandals in the life of the church, or when I was shaken by challenging events in my own life. Again and again, I would come back to Jesus. If he is true God and true man, then I can trust his words and his work, and everything else, no matter how difficult, will resolve itself. As Simon Peter said at a moment of doubt, to whom else shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. So what was it that initially provoked doubt in me as to the divinity of Jesus? It was reading secondhand copies of works of biblical scholarship when I was in my late teens. I could have found better things to do in my late teens, but that's what I was doing. Charlie Burns Bookshop in Galway, I highly recommend it, full of great works that will undermine your faith probably, but also works that will build up your faith. In any case, the works I was reading seemed almost designed to undermine my faith. And the major ideas that challenged me were two. Jesus never claimed to be God, and the earliest Christians didn't believe that Jesus was God. So this idea that those who actually knew Jesus and spent time with him understood that he was just an ordinary rabbi, and that people who had never met him then invented stories about him, eventually leading to the idea that he was God the Son in the flesh. So that kind of idea. These claims weren't always explicitly stated in what I read. They were often merely assumed, but they were operative nevertheless. Stated positively, these claims, they become a narrative. A mere man, a rabbi maybe, or a zealot, or whatever you like to call him, understood to be an ordinary human being by his followers, dies, and then stories begin to be told about him. And these stories grow legs, and a kind of uncontrolled folklore builds up, and you end up with a more and more exalted understanding of Christ, eventually leading to the definitions of the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. This narrative is stated at its most extreme in that, that great work of literature, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, a book whose omnipresence is uh, currently causing problems for charity shops. So in that work of fiction, you'll find this bit of dialogue presenting um, uh, in fictional narrative what Dan Brown apparently believes is fact. So have a listen to this. Sophie's head was spinning. I don't know. Hands up if you've read The Da Vinci Code. There's no shame. I've read The Da Vinci Code. Okay, a lot of you haven't. Whoa, it's clearly a generational kind of a thing, not to state your generation, Niall. But anyway. <laughs> um, so Sophie uh, is this character who doesn't understand anything, but she's surrounded by professional mansplainers, uh, so she's very, you know, that's very useful to her. So Sophie's head was spinning. And all of this relates to the grail? Indeed, Teabing says. He's played in the movie by Ian McKellen. Stay with me. <laughs> Stay with me, Sophie. During this fusion of religions, Constantine needed to strengthen the new Christian tradition and held a famous ecumenical gathering known as the Council of Nicaea. Now in the movie, it kind of flashes back to the Council of Nicaea. And I think it was Terry Eagleton who said the, the way it represented the Council of Nicaea, it looked like a Beastie Boys concert, which you know, makes ecumenical councils sound a lot more interesting than they might be. At this gathering, Teabing said, many aspects of Christianity were debated and voted upon. The date of Easter, the role of the bishops, the administration of sacraments, and of course, the divinity of Jesus. I don't follow, says Sophie. His divinity? My dear, Teabing declared, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet. So until 325, he was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. Hold on, you're saying Jesus' divinity was the result of a vote? A relatively close vote at that, Teabing added. 
Nonetheless, establishing Christ's divinity was critical to the further unification of the Roman Empire and to the new Vatican power base. By officially endorsing Jesus as the Son of God, Constantine turned Jesus into a deity who existed beyond the scope of the human world, an entity whose power was unchallengeable. This not only precluded further pagan challenges to Christianity, but now the followers of Christ were able to redeem themselves only by the established sacred channel, the Roman Catholic Church. Sophie glanced at Langdon, her other mansplainer, and he gave her a soft nod of concurrence. And so she knew it was true. So this is not true. Spoiler alert. This is not true. This is an extreme and extremely inaccurate version of the narrative. But its basic structure, first mere man, then much later the god man, is a very well-worn story. So I remember learning a version of it at school in my Catholic school, the diocesan college in Galway. The Gospel of Mark uh, which was probably the earliest gospel, this is what we were taught, presents Jesus as an ordinary human who does some extraordinary things. And he only appears as God-made man in the gospel of John, which was written much later. Some of you might be familiar with that idea. So in this talk, I'll simply be sharing with you some of what helped me think through these challenging ideas to the get to the point where, evidently enough, I'm happy to say the words of the creed and to mean them to say the words of the creed, although I'm not always good at saying the words of the creed, a few weeks ago at Sunday Mass, it was late, late night Sunday Mass, 8.30 p.m., and I realized something had gone wrong in the creed because the people weren't with me. And then I realized I started the Apostles' Creed, and right now I'm in the Nicene Creed. Um, but I just, as confident as anything, I just kept going. Um, now, you might at this point be disappointed, whether believer or non-believer, that I'm not going to be trying to present here a knockdown case for the divinity of Jesus a proof, an argument that nobody could deny. And I'm very consciously not doing that because in theology, I'm a disciple of St. Thomas Aquinas, as I'm sure many of you are. If you read the opening chapters of the Summa Contra Gentiles, so book one, chapters one to nine, you get St. Thomas's statement of how he understands faith and reason to relate to one another. Some things we can discover by reason alone, including, he says, some things about God, like his existence, his goodness, and so on. But for many other truths of the faith, we rely on revelation. And these truths he calls mysteries, uh, which are not irrational, but are supra-rational. We, we can't arrive at them by means of our reason. So we might say that our reason is out of, out of its depth when it considers mysteries of the faith. The question of the divinity of Jesus is not a question we can straightforwardly answer in the way that we could straightforwardly answer the question by the use of reason alone what is the square root of four, or what is the best university in Dublin? In the case of Jesus, Thomas Aquinas explicitly denies that we could know that Jesus was God unless it had been revealed to us. And accepting this revelation, it involves much more than just our reason. But for those who do believe, Thomas says, we can nevertheless investigate these mysteries by using reason, since, as I said, they're not irrational, but supra-rational. As well as investigating these mysteries, that activity which we call systematic or dogmatic theology, um, believers can also respond using their reason to objections to the faith, objections uh, um, and to show the coherence of the faith against those who claim it is incoherent. So that's the role of reason within faith, to investigate it and to, to appreciate its coherence and then to defend it against the claims of those who say it is not uh, coherent. That's Thomas's position on the humble role of reason in the realm of faith, and I think it's quite a wise one. It's not a position that is reducible to fideism, so tonight I won't just be proclaiming at you my belief in the divinity of Jesus, 
But it's not a matter of mere rationalism either, and I'm not going to try to browbeat you with arguments. I'll be aiming instead, as I said, to defend the coherence of belief in the divinity of Jesus by responding to these two major objections. Jesus never claimed to be God, and the earliest Christians didn't believe that he was God. And I'm going to do so by what I hope is a, is a careful reading of some New Testament passages, mainly from the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and from Paul's letters, uh, and to read those passages in light of the Old Testament passages, which the writers and early readers of the New Testament knew very well. Now, I'm not going to be able to go into a full defense of the reliability of the Gospels as historical evidence for the sayings and doings uh, of Jesus of Nazareth, but I will point you to a really important book by Richard Bauckham, which does just that. Uh, this book was really important to me um, in my theological study, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. He's a historian by training, and he uses really good historical and sociological tools, um, and using those tools, he essentially destroys the, the idea that the narratives about Jesus are best understood as uh, folklore, as uncontrolled narratives distant from the original reality. The gap between the events of Jesus' earthly life and the composition of the Gospels just isn't large enough, he says, for that analysis to be appropriate, either large enough in terms of chronology or in terms of degrees of separation. We know from the Gospels themselves and from other early Christian works that the value of eyewitness testimony was very important to the earliest Christian communities, that these communities were actively interested in compiling testimony from the eyewitnesses who were still to be found in the 60s, 70s, and later decades of the first century. So Balkum suggests that entirely apart from Christian faith or theology, the Gospels should be considered as containing reliable and consistent testimony about Jesus. Is this the same as CCTV footage of everything he said and did? No. Testimony necessarily involves elements of subjectivity, but it's still historically valuable when used with appropriate caution. Any historians here will know the extent to which oral history is valued uh, in the practice of history today. And Balkan presents a convincing case, I think, that the Gospels count as oral history rather than as a vague and easily manipulated oral tradition. And just to say a more recent and more accessible book than that of Bauckham is The Case for Jesus by Brant Petrie. I think the, the title of that book is kind of unnecessarily forensic. And I think actually no matter what your position on this, if you have any interest um, in historical questions around Jesus, I think you would enjoy, enjoy this book. It's based on very, very good scholarship and it's well argued. So let's get into it. Firstly, did Jesus claim to be God? If we read the Gospels looking for a statement in the mouth of Jesus that approximates to what we say in the Nicene Creed, we won't, of course, find one. But if we read with attention, we find many, many gestures and sayings which express with considerable clarity his claim to divine authority and status. So, a few examples. Firstly, the healing of the, the paralytic, as recounted in Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 2, it's represented here in a, in a really extraordinary location in Duryaropos in Syria, this early third century um, wall paintings. And you can see, you can just about make out the paralytic lying on the bed, and then it's the same paralytic uh, carrying his bed, and Jesus there has, has uh, carried out this healing. So just have a listen to this passage from Mark chapter 2. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room for them, not even about the door, and he was preaching the word to them. 
And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. I'm sure you're all familiar with this story. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak thus? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question thus in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your pallet and walk. But that you may know, and this is an important element, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, take up your pallet and go home. And he rose and immediately, immediately took up the pallet and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Now, leave aside for a moment the, the healing miracle. Um, that's not really the most important element here at all. What really shocks the scribes is the claim to forgive sins. They know the Bible well. They're scribes. They're professionals. They know the words of the prophets and the Psalms, which speak of God showing his power by forgiving sins. They know of the sacrifices in the temple offered to God, which implore the forgiveness of sins. They understand what this man is claiming when he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. The healing of the paralytic in this narrative is simply aimed at validating the claim to have the authority to forgive sins. He says, so that you may know that the son of man, that is Jesus himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he carries out the healing. So Jesus is accused of blasphemy, of appropriating to himself something which belongs to God alone. And when he's accused of exactly this, he doubles down. And that's significant. So let's turn now to uh, Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. You know all that, love your enemies, do not be anxious about tomorrow, judge not lest you be judged, all that stuff that we all love. I mean, it's part of Jesus' teaching that is popular even far beyond the community of faith. I think even Richard Dawkins is a fan of the Sermon on the Mount. But leave aside for a moment the content of what he teaches in Matthew 5 to 7 and consider how he teaches it, how he presents his teaching. Is Jesus in Matthew 5 to 7 just interpreting the law like a standard Jewish teacher of his time? Well, one scholar who knows everything there is to know about Jewish teachers in the period, Jacob Neusner, he thinks that Jesus is definitely not teaching in a standard way in Matthew 5 to 7. What's the repeated refrain of the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. And this is repeated again and again, often intensifying some or other of the commandments of the Torah. Neusner, Jacob Neusner, a rabbi himself and a profound student of rabbinic literature, he wonders how he himself, if he were there uh, uh, listening to the Sermon on the Mount, how he would have reacted if he heard this teaching. I would have been astonished, he says. Here is a Torah teacher who says in his own name what the Torah says in God's name. Neusner is Jewish himself. He doesn't believe in the divinity of Jesus, but he's clear that Jesus cannot be considered merely a good Jewish teacher. The very way he teaches 
includes a claim to divine authority. And even in the Gospels, we see this remarked upon. Think of Mark 1.22. Jesus teaches in the synagogue in Capernaum, and the people, were told, were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So his contemporaries regard him as different from the standard teachers of the law. So the third example from the teaching of Jesus involves the title Kyrios in Greek, or Lord. Now, Kyrios has a very broad range of meanings in ancient Greek, um, including simply master, the master of a slave, um, and even just kind of mister or, or, or sir. So if you type in the liturgical phrase that many of us are familiar with, Kyrie eleison, if you type that into Google Translate from Greek to English, you get, uh, sir, take it easy, which I think <laughs> new translation of the mass just dropped. So not every use of the word Kyrios involves uh, a claim to divine status or authority. But in a Jewish context, this is the word that is used in Greek translations of the Old Testament to translate the Hebrew word Adonai, which is used to replace the unpronounced name of God. Um, And we see Jesus in the Gospels applying this title to himself in a way that suggests it's precisely this identity that he's claiming for himself. So in Mark chapter 12, we see Jesus teach that the Messiah, the Christ, who uh, in the context of the Gospel is clearly himself, is addressed in Psalm 109 as Lord, as Kyrios. The Messiah, he says, isn't just the son of David, he is the Lord of David. In Mark chapter 2, even more shockingly, Jesus refers to himself as Lord of the Sabbath. His disciples, again, probably lots of you know the story, his disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees ask him why. And this is part of his answer. The son of man himself is Lord of the Sabbath. So given Israel's understanding of the observance of the Sabbath as a gift from God and a command from God, this is much more than a claim to some human respect or authority. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Finally, in in Matthew chapter 7, again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches, and it's a very strange phrase, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, we can set to one one side the, the precise meaning of that particular teaching, and consider what is implicit in it. Jesus is envisaging people calling on him as Lord, as part of a plea for salvation. And in the Old Testament, we find very clear parallels to that, addressing the God of Israel as Lord. So Joel 2.32, I mean, it's, it's almost an exact parallel with what Jesus is saying there, except that Jesus states it in the negative. So this is not just about calling him sir. This is not just a matter of politeness. This is a claim here to divine authority. Now there are many other passages from the Gospels that we could consider. The fact, for example, that he heals in his own name. Unlike the Apostles, if you read the Acts of the Apostles, uh, they say explicitly, we can't heal in our own name, but we'll heal in the name of Jesus. So very clear distinction between the holiness of the Apostles and the holiness of Jesus. The fact also that in the Gospels, he willingly receives on a few occasions worship. The Greek word there is proskonesis. Whereas the Apostles, again, if you read Acts, the Apostles, when that same veneration, proskonesis, is offered to them, they refuse it. So in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius bows down and offers proskonesis to Peter. And what does Peter say to him? Don't do that. I'm just a man. Okay, which shows their understanding of what this kind of worship meant, this kind of worship which Jesus willingly received. And think of sayings like Jesus, again, which are so familiar to us 
uh, that we might not recognize what a strange thing it is for a man to say, come to me, I will give you rest. Come to me, I will give you rest. Or even, I am with you always. They're big claims. They're both, I think, from, yeah, both from the, the Gospel of Matthew there. They're big claims for a mere teacher to make. And note here that I haven't even considered the Gospel of John at this stage, and I won't in this lecture. So there are a few of the reasons, in any case, that I think it's perfectly reasonable to hold that Jesus claimed divine status by his actions and his words once they're understood properly in their context and against their Old Testament background. So what about the earliest Christians? Do we find evidence for belief in Jesus' divinity slowly growing over time from the earliest documents to the latest with kind of a mere man sort of belief at the earliest stage and uh, the God-man at the later stage. I'm going to turn to the letters of Paul in a moment, but let's stick with the Gospels uh, first. People usually regard, as I mentioned, they usually regard Mark as the earliest of the four Gospels. Um, And it's often said, as I mentioned already, that Jesus is presented there in a purely human fashion, as an inspired holy man, as a prophet, and so on. That's very hard to square with even the first few verses of the Gospel of Mark. So here's what it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, in Isaiah the prophet, and what follows isn't just Isaiah, it's Isaiah and Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, and so on. So what does this have to do with claiming that Jesus is divine? quite a lot if you're familiar with the Old Testament. So the evangelist here is combining a verse from Malachi and a verse from Isaiah to speak about John the Baptist as a messenger sent before Jesus to prepare the way. But if you take a look at the original context of these passages, they're immensely revealing. So Isaiah, uh, behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me. And sorry, this is Malachi. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So this messenger is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And then Isaiah, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The evangelist Mark, in repurposing these texts to speak of John the Baptist, seems to be implying some identity between Jesus and the Lord of hosts, our God, as Isaiah says, the one God of Israel. Now, I'm sure you all know that the the Gospels are not the oldest Christian documents. The letters of St. Paul are almost certainly considerably older, uh, with the oldest, like uh, 1 Thessalonians and Galatians, dating to within 20 years of the crucifixion. What you're looking at here, are any of you familiar with, uh, with this papyrus? Uh, it's a probably a strange question to ask. Are you familiar with this virus? But you should be. Um, so in, Chester, in the Chester Beatty Library, uh, they have the oldest um, collection, the oldest surviving collection of St. Paul's letters on papyrus are on display. Um, I'm not sure if they're currently on display. Uh, they were as part of a special exhibition, which we have on our YouTube channel. Like and subscribe. We have a series of videos on our YouTube channel about these manuscripts, including this very, uh, this very papyrus, uh, P46, the oldest surviving compilation of Paul's letters. Now, the great thing about Paul's letters is that they don't just tell us what Paul thought. Uh, So sometimes we think that, okay, Paul's letters, they just tell us what Paul thought. But that's not the case. They actually tell us a great deal more. They tell us a lot about the practices and beliefs of the people 
with whom he's in contact. So if, for example, St. Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, which referred casually to Jesus as Lord, and referred to the practice of calling on the name of the Lord in their worship, and if Paul then receives a reply from the Corinthians asking lots and lots of questions, but not raising questions about the Lordship of Jesus, then we can be fairly sure that the Corinthian Christians took it for granted that Jesus was Lord and were quite happy to call on his name in their worship. So this letter reveals not only what Paul thought, but what was normal to think within his communities. If Paul is concerned in his letters about how other Christian leaders see him because of this or that point, and he very often is, but isn't worried that they'll find his way of speaking about Jesus too exalted, then we can be reasonably sure that the Pauline way of speaking about and to Jesus doesn't differ too greatly from that of other communities. Now, of course, it took a few centuries for Christians to find the precise language to describe the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, to say that there were three persons in one divine nature, consubstantial, co-eternal, and so on. But if you dig into these letters, then it becomes clear that these later definitions were already present in embryo in earliest Christian practices. There's a great deal of Trinitarian theology implicit in what the earliest Christians say and do, often with little fuss, and certainly with no idea of denying the oneness of God. What we certainly don't find when we dig into these letters is a primitive Christianity that treats Jesus as merely human. Right from the beginning, Jesus is being worshipped by people who knew perfectly well that worship is due to God alone. For those uh, looking for even more reading, I really would heartily recommend uh, these books by Larry Hurtado. It's really who, he who brought this question front and centre in biblical scholarship and in theology more generally. Not just what did the earliest Christians believe, but first of all, how and whom do they worship? Whom do they honour with the honour due only to God? They're questions we can answer, and then they can help us to answer more difficult questions about what early Christians believed. One example of this kind of uh, worship of Christ are the passages known as the Christological hymns, passages in the letters of Paul and other New Testament letters, which seem not actually to be written in prose, but were probably songs used in worship. So earlier than the composition of these letters, uh, it seems in, in many of these cases that the, letter, the writers of these letters are actually quoting, um, surviving, quoting earlier uh, hymns that would be familiar to their recipients. Um, so hymns like these can be found, so argue some scholars at least, in Colossians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, 1 Timothy 3. So Father Alan and myself, you know, we, we sing these New Testament canticles on a regular basis in, in the divine office. So these texts, if um, they're correctly identified as hymns, they offer a window into the world of the worship of the earliest Christians. And what's astonishing uh, about these texts is how strongly they emphasize the divinity of Jesus. So again and again, not in the words of Nicaea, um, although Philippians 2 does say he was in the form of God, and morphe theou, which is a very striking phrase. And Colossians chapter 1 says that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. But beyond that, the, the Jesus of these early hymns, um, which as I said, possibly predate the, uh, the letters themselves, the Jesus of these early hymns is clearly not a mere man, a rabbi, 
a political agitator. He is one who existed with God before the creation. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the one in whom all things uh, were made and for whom all things were made. He is the one who has been taken up into glory, 1 Timothy 3. And he's the one uh, at whose name every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow. So there's more that we could say about Paul's letters. In Romans uh, 14, chapter 11, for example, Paul quotes Isaiah to say once again that the phrase that we've just heard, that every knee uh, shall bow to the Lord. And in the context, uh, it's clear that he's associating this veneration, uh, not just with with the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, but with Christ himself even though Isaiah was clearly referring to uh, the God of Israel. And this idea is repeated, of course, in Philippians 2. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then the next bit is important, to the glory of God the Father. So again, there's an important element. The Lordship of Jesus is not seen in any way as being in conflict with that of the Father. Giving glory to Jesus in the, um, the, the mind of Paul doesn't take glory from the Father. It gives glory to him. So these cases and many more, again, they're not a matter of ordinary veneration of a beloved teacher. They involve taking texts about God dear to Jews and applying them to a man who had recently lived and died in Palestine. That's extraordinary. Even in the oldest Christian document, we find such an exalted uh, understanding of Jesus simply taken as the standard understanding of the faithful. So Paul is, um, is telling the Thessalonian Christians that he hopes to see them again soon. But how he says it is pretty incredible. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. He's here praying to Jesus and to the Father with one breath. And the fact that he does so casually, just 20 or so years after the resurrection, is quite amazing. But what's important to note in all this is that at no point does Paul have to insist on this or that claim about Jesus. Paul gets into plenty of conflicts. He gets into a lot uh, of conflicts. But they're not conflicts about the worship of Jesus or his exaltation. And all of this implies that the various other Christian communities he was in contact with were comfortable with what he was saying. These communities included not only former pagans, but also many Jews committed to monotheism. So the overall picture that emerges from an attentive reading of the New Testament, I think, is that Jesus, the Jesus who grew up in Nazareth and worked and learned the scriptures and taught the scriptures and gathered disciples and healed and debated and so on, that this Jesus manifested himself through his words and actions as one who is mysteriously identified with the one God of Israel. What's clear too is that however deeply we go in the texts available to us, Jesus' earliest followers think of him and speak of him as being so identified. We simply can't dig away the layers of belief in Jesus' divinity to find some primitive Christianity which treats him as a mere man. The most primitive Christianity we have access to is already worshipping Jesus, and worship, these early believers knew, is due to God alone. Now, I don't expect all of you at this point to stand up necessarily and proclaim the Nicene Creed with me. Well, actually, I'd probably struggle to proclaim it and I'd switch creeds. Um, but I hope, in any case, that you don't regard what I have said tonight as the last word on Jesus, no matter what your position on Jesus might be. It's anything but. And that brings me to 
A final question. If Jesus really is true God with the Father and the Spirit, why didn't he just say it? Why didn't he just come down and hand over a nice pre-formulated creed? The answer, I think, should be evident to anyone who uh, spends time reading the Gospels. Again and again, Jesus shows in the Gospels that what matters to him is not quick and easy answers, but relationship, discipleship, community. Come and see, he says. He walks with the disciples to Emmaus before revealing his identity. And he could have done that at the start of the journey. I hope, above all, at the end of this talk, that uh, you are less inclined to regard Jesus as a problem that has long been solved and perhaps more interested in walking with him in all his mystery. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.